Um, so, yes, thanks for, for coming. And uh, as I said, this will be the, uh, the last session for, for this term. Um, and what I'm going to talk about is kind of an extension, a little bit of what I uh, was talking about last time about the ethical normative question of how do you reconcile uh, liberalism with nationalism and ethnicity? Is it possible to reconcile those? And to try and bring that into the British context a little bit by asking the question of how uh, this country has tried to reconcile its liberal principles with both the British national identity and with sub-state ethnic and national identities. So uh, I'm going to try and go through some of the early slides fairly quickly. You've got the uh, slides already. Uh, that just discusses the ethnic and national composition of Britain. And then we look at how does the British state manage that ethnic diversity and what is its vision for uh, national identity and how does it reconcile national identity with its commitment to liberalism. Uh, and, and what is the debate between those on different sides of this question of Britishness and multiculturalism? Okay, so um, when I talk about multiculturalism and Britishness, um, what I'm not talking about necessarily is when I say multiculturalism, I don't mean lots of different kinds of people living in the same place. Uh, that is a demographic description of reality, uh, but that's not what multiculturalism really means. Multiculturalism is, uh, should be thought about as uh, a policy and a philosophy of how groups should be managed within a state, should get along within a state. Uh, and it also uh, reflects the national identity of a country. So you have this issue of a number of different ethnic groups and nations within Britain. And the question is, first of all, how do you manage them so they all get along? And secondly, um, do you go for a policy that recognizes, explicitly recognizes groups as bearers of rights or particular um, privileges, or do you, in fact, just take a colorblind approach that says, we're not going to recognize that there are groups here. We're just going to recognize that there are a bunch of British citizens, and they're going to relate to the state as equal British citizens, and we're not going to take into account their ethnic and group identities, because only individuals have rights, groups don't have rights, as opposed to a view that says, actually, we have to take account of the fact that there are different groups, and we have to accord them different rights. Uh, and so there's a debate between, on the one hand, a more kind of integration or assimilation uh, policy versus a more multicultural policy. So the underlying diversity is the same. No one's contesting that. It's not about, this is not about many different groups living in one place. That, I, I have to stress that because many people make that mistake on essays. Uh, it is about the policy to deal with that diversity. It's not about the diversity, it's about the policy to deal with the diversity, okay? So that's what, what we're really discussing with, with the debate over multiculturalism. Okay, so I'll just talk a little bit about the different kinds of ethnic and national diversity. Again, this is not the policy I'm talking about. This is just on the ground ethnic and national diversity in the UK. So going back to the definitions, which I mentioned in the first class, you've got a state, which is Britain, or the United Kingdom, and then you have a series of nations. I'm not going to get into the question, well, first you have a state nation, Britain, okay, that's, hopefully you get that distinction, <laughs> because you also have sub-state nations, England, Wales, uh, Scotland, and in the case of Northern Ireland, you have two competing nations, with one being British, one being uh, one group seeking to join, to be British, another group seeking to be Irish. And then we have a number of different ethnic groups. We have the primary ethnic groups, English, Scots, Welsh, etc. And then you've got the diaspora ethnic groups, such as British Pakistanis, Jews, Turkish Cypriots, and so on. So these are groups whose myths and memories are within Great Britain, that's where they, they trace their ancestry, and these are groups that trace their myths, memories, ancestry to other parts of the world. So that's kind of just a quick 
overview, nothing incredibly new there, but just to kind of give you a, a sense of a lie of the land. Uh, I'm not going to, again, I'm going to move quite quickly through this. It's, this is just to say that through the centuries, British national identity, you'll know that Britain was formed in 1707. That's the union uh, that brought Scotland and England together with Wales. Uh, the identity of uh, with Wales and Ireland, incidentally, but the identity of Britain was very much based on uh, shared Protestantism, as Linda Cauley uh, writes in her book. So Protestantism was a very important glue for, for Britain and British identity in the period from 1707 to uh, through the 19th century. And obviously, if you're Irish Catholic, that's a bit of a problem, unsurprisingly. Um, and this is one of the reasons that Irish nationalism was a, a major force. Um, the other thing to say is that there are both, there were both ethnic and civic elements in the British national identity. The ethnic element was based around Protestantism, uh, whiteness, and also Anglo-Saxon, a sense of shared Anglo-Saxon identity, even amongst uh, Scots, believe it or not. There was that sense, particularly amongst the lowland Scots who have that Anglo-Saxon root. So there you have a, a shared discourse. So there's a very strong ethnic dimension to British national identity. Um, However, uh, the trend, particularly in the 20th century, has been to try and move away from that and to define a more political rather than a more ethnic uh, version of Britishness. So it's more based on loyalty to this British state and institutions and monarchy and so on. So it's just to say that you had a thicker definition, a more ethnic definition of Britishness, and it's moved in a more civic direction, particularly post-Second World War. And actually, already, the Protestant bit was starting to fade, even in the 19th century, actually. Um, so the, the, the Anglican Church was disestablished, and you had a lot more freedom for Catholics after, from the 1830s. So you know, already in the 19th century, you get a little bit of that thinning, and then in the 20th, even more. Um, but you can see that here's, a, here's an issue of how you manage the diversity of society, English, Welsh, Scots. One way is to say, well, they're all Protestant. The Irish Catholics weren't. Uh, that's a bit of a problem, but Britain, the, the British identity tended to say, okay, but we'll capture most of the affections of the population by going for a Protestant identity. Um, what about the empire? I mean, there's an issue of English national identity. So during the period when the British Empire was strong, uh, that was the basis a big basis of British identity. Um, but at the same time, there was also an English national identity. And there were people talking about Englishness, but it was largely subsumed by talk about Britishness and Britannia and the empire. So English national identity didn't disappear. And Krishan Kumar wrote well about this in his work on English nationalism. But uh, it was largely subsumed within the British empire and British nationalism. Um, what about what was going on with Scottish and Welsh nationalism at the time? Uh, just as in, in Spain, for example, the Basques and Catalans were involved in the Spanish Empire, Scots and Welsh were very involved in the British Empire, and so they actually joined in that project. And there really wasn't a, a lot of uh, Scottish and Welsh national agitation. Having said that, uh, particularly with the case of Wales, you had a different, well, in both Scotland and Wales, you had a different, slightly different version of Protestantism. Uh, so Wales Methodism was strong in Scotland Presbyterianism. So that provided a, a little bit of a difference. But you didn't have really strong regional nationalism. You did have a cultural nationalism emerging in Wales beginning in the early 19th century. That, but that was more of a kind of romantic, uh, kind of Celtic uh, nationalism rather than a political separatist kind of nationalism. Uh, only in Ireland, where which had a Catholic uh, majority, do you see a full-blown uh, secessionist movement. What then happens, however, is starting in the 60s and 70s, you get more agitation out of Scotland and Wales, partly because the British Empire is declining. The prestige of Britain is in decline. That's one reason. Uh, another reason is certain inspiration coming from the US civil rights movement, from decolonization, from all of these new movements. So that affects the course of Scottish, particularly Scottish nationalism. And so eventually what you get to is the idea of devolution in the 1990s, parliament for Wales, parliament for Scotland. Now the point here is you've got one state, Britain. You've got several nations, including Scotland and Wales, 
the way of managing that problem of having different, different nations within one state is to devolve power to the nations by giving them their own parliament. I'm going to exclude Northern Ireland for the moment, who also got their own parliament. Uh, so uh, that can be seen as a kind of recognition of group rights. Well, we can't just treat the Scots and the Welsh as simply British citizens. We have to recognize that the British citizens living in Dorset or Devon are not in the same category as those living in Wales or Scotland, because the ones living in Wales or Scotland are living in a historic area that's got its own sense of national identity. So we've got to give them a little extra. And so we're going to give them another extra layer of representation. And we're going to give them uh, an assembly. So that's kind of multiculturalism. In fact, that is part of what multiculturalism is about, recognizing groups that Individuals are not identical in a country, but those who are members of some groups need some extra recognition. That may simply be just to keep them in the country, by the way, but it's still something that the government decided was necessary. So devolution, the discussion around devolution begins in the 70s, uh, giving more power. Not independence, it's short of independence, but it's giving them more power. What about the immigrant groups, the diaspora groups? Well. There's been a history of um, immigration beginning with Huguenot, French Protestants in the 17th century, um, and then through the 18th century with the Scots, the Irish, and the Jews in the 19th and 20th. And in fact, if you look at a lot of the political leaders of the main parties today, you can see the legacy of those migrations. You know, David Cameron, the Scottish surname, Nigel Farage, the Huguenot name, and then Miliband, Jewish surnames. You've got the legacy of these migrants uh, in a lot of our political elite. But what's interesting, and then post-1948, you get uh, commonwealth, or, or sorry, uh, post-colonial migrations from uh, the Caribbean and the Indian subcontinent, beginning with the Windrush, which is a famous ship that brought Caribbean laborers to Britain in 1948. So, uh, that's just a sort of very quick snapshot of some of the uh, immigrant movements from the 17th century. Uh, these were generally not enormous numbers. These were small numbers. But you sometimes had in very important local effects, in particular from the Irish uh, immigration to uh, the west coast of Scotland, namely Glasgow and to Liverpool. So the Irish in, in, Glas in greater Glasgow were about a third are now about a third of the population stock, roughly. So they made a fairly large impact. And also in Liverpool, similar share of the population. So in both of those cases, you actually had a fair bit of ethnic conflict. And there's even some residue of that actually in football. And some of you might know about uh, that division, which, which is actually a lot, lot more muted than it used to be. Um, OK. Moving to, more, to the more recent period. Um, you see that in some parts of England, particularly in the north, uh, in the mill towns, places like Oldham, where there was a recent by-election, incidentally, um, Burnley, Bradford, you have, you have had a history of ethnic tension uh, between the Asian Muslim population and the white British population. Um, so that's just to say that, that you know, there is this history. Um, how has the British state managed in terms of integration of these waves of immigrants. And one of the ways that it's managed, which is often not commented upon, is assimilation. Uh, it just sort of happened voluntarily. So if you, again, I, I listed all of those British political leaders who have some immigrant background. Uh, that, that is showing you that, in fact, there's been a lot of assimilation of various peoples into the English, the ethnic majority English, who are about 75% of the population of England. Um, and so you can see that in surnames like Farage or Fletcher, which are actually French in origin, come from the Huguenot migration. Same thing in the US. Uh, Paul Revere, anyone know of the midnight ride of Paul Revere in the American Revolution? So he, I mean, Paul Revere would be a descendant of the Huguenots as well. Uh, so they kind of more or less melted into the ethnic majority. And 
You can probably say the same about the Irish and the Jews in large measure, not entirely. There are still people on the census who identify as Irish rather than <coughs> British, but uh, that number has declined substantially since the 2001 census, and indicating a lot of the children of people who identified as Irish would identify themselves as English now. Um, and you can see that to some extent too with the Jews. Uh, and again, I just point to politicians like Mandelson and Howard and Miliband as people who are essentially, effectively, from the ethnic majority, but who have these immigrant roots. So assimilation has to be considered one, one way in which uh, the diversity was handled. Not an explicit policy, but it just sort of happened almost by accident, because as people, Milton Gordon, an American uh, sociologist, had had sort of what he called a seven-stage process of assimilation, where first people join in the economy and the political system, then they become culturally assimilated, speaking the same language, uh, and eventually this facilitates intermarriage, and then that changes identity. Uh, so that's that's one way in which immigrants can uh, become integrated into the society. However. Uh, there are, according to Ernest Gellner, uh, in his work on, on national identity, he wrote quite interestingly on this idea that some groups uh, don't assimilate as easily. So Gellner was thinking of the Jews of Central and Eastern Europe as a group which, because of their religion, uh, were not just going to follow this automatic process of disappearing or melting into the dominant groups. Uh, now, in Britain, yeah, there seem to be different trajectories for different recent groups. So you have, uh, for the Afro-Caribbeans, I think broadly speaking, there's a, a view that there's been more of an assimilation path. So you've got high intermarriage with the white British. And so there seems to be more of an assimilation path for Afro-Caribbeans. But for some other groups, particularly um, Hindu Sikhs and Muslims, much less. So much less intermarriage. and generally more of what Gellner was talking about, where you have uh, these groups able to maintain themselves into the second and third generation. And that's not just Muslims, by the way. Sikhs and Hindus are, have the exact same pattern of um, managing to retain their ethnic identity in large part uh, over subsequent generations. I'm not going to go over this. I just, I'd like to sort of show you my minute of fame here, where I was talking about the, this issue of religion. Uh, because, and religion is important. So you know, the obvious thing is you can see with the Afro-Caribbeans is you know, the Protestants, their religion is pretty close to the mainstream. Whereas Hindu Sikhs, and Muslims have a different religion. And that, that's, that's important, because it means that that defends, that, that ethnicity and religion reinforce each other. And in a way, both are protected, and that means as those of you who came to my lecture will know, um, secularization is much less common in those communities because it's protected by the ethnicity. But at the same time, the ethnicity is also protected by, by the different religions. So the, the religious difference is a marker of ethnicity as well. Um, just being non-Christian marks, marks your ethnic group up. Gives your group something more to hold on to. Um, and it was picked up by Newsweek. OK. so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that, now, what about this, this question then of immigrant groups and ethnic conflict? Because part of what the state's trying to do is manage ethnic conflict. And maybe the best way of managing ethnic conflict is to say, like to some extent the French do, we're not going to be colorblind. We're just treating citizens as citizens. And we don't want to know about groups. Another way, though, is to, is to take a more multicultural approach perhaps, um, and then to say society's made up of groups and we want to explicitly recognize that. Um, now, this is just to say there's been a history of a small amount of ethnic rioting and tension in the United Kingdom, beginning with the Notting Hill riots, which were between uh, whites and blacks. That pattern of white-black rioting is no longer with us. And I think part of the reason is due to uh, Afro-Caribbean assimilation. So they're no longer perceived as different enough to be involved in these riots. Well, what tends to happen now are either white Asian conflict, as in the Milltown riots, or in some cases, police versus black youths, 
uh, as in the 1981 talks that run in. Ted Cantle, in his report on the Milltown riots, which involved uh, whites and Asians in the uh, in Oldham, Burnley, and Bradford, he, he says, well, really the problem is that we've moved to this to a segregated world, that we've sort of become quite a segregated society. So if you go to Oldham, all the Asian Muslims are in one part of town, and the white British are in another part of town, and that it contributes to this lack of understanding that the groups never come into contact with each other. I think there's a quote that, you know, some Asian Muslim that he inter interviewed said, you're probably the only white person I'm going to meet today. You know? So that kind of statement suggests that groups are not mixing in many of these communities. So what the Cattle Report suggested was we really got to try and break down these, these boundaries and that part of the problem has been the reigning ideology of multiculturalism, which recognizes groups and allocates resources to community organizations to perpetuate their own cultures. And what that leads to is the perpetuation of segregation and difference. So that was something that come out to, came, uh, came out of the Cattle Report, uh, very much advocating an emphasis on integration. So moving away from, if you like, recognition of groups and group rights back towards that more Republican French model of individuals, individual rights only, um, group identity to be a private matter. Okay. So in, in some ways, that's important for, for policymakers. That, so it's a shift away from multiculturalism towards integration. Not quite assimilation, but moving in that direction. Um, so if we want to look at the question of integration, we can look at different measures. And the problem is that the measures don't all speak with the same voice. They tell a different story. So in terms of education and economic attainment, you can see that it's the South Asian population that seems to be uh, doing somewhat better than the Afro-Caribbean population. So the South, South Asians, particularly the UK-born generation, are doing very well in school and seem to be doing better economically. Within the South Asians, you've also got divisions, obviously, between uh, very high achieving groups such as the East African Asians and groups that don't do as well, uh, Bangladeshis and Pakistanis, although those groups, second generation or third generation, seems to have uh, enjoyed quite a bit of social mobility. So they are achieving at a much higher level. And the groups that seem to be doing the worst educationally and economically are the uh, working class whites and Afro-Caribbeans. So that, those groups seem to be economically and educationally the least integrated. However, um, when it comes to intermarriage and culture, the Afro-Caribbeans are the best integrated group. So they have the highest rates of intermarriage and the highest rates of cultural integration. So it, it's, it's a tricky question as to you know, which groups are more integrated than other groups and what are the best policies Policymakers are struggling with this question. Uh, I didn't teach you about this big word, consociationalism, because there's not enough time on this course to actually get into that. Consociationalism is the um, political system they have in Lebanon and Northern Ireland, where uh, group rights is the main principle. So um, the Northern Ireland police force has a 50-50 recruiting policy, 50% Catholic, 50% Protestant. The electoral system is PR, or proportional representation. So the, the legislature resembles the makeup of the population. 50% Protestant in the population, you're going to get 50% more or less Protestant or unionist parties in the legislature. How did the, uh, the guard test that? Is that like a Catholic and a uh, Protestant card, life card or something? I think you've got to declare. I think you technically had because you know if they wanted to you know, uh, massage those figures, it'd be very easy to. Uh, uh, I get uh, I'm not sure. I think people have to fill out forms, and so yeah. I mean, if they if people lie on the forms, fine, but no. <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to ask, say, where did you go to school, and all those other things. Yeah. So, but so so we don't have anything like that in. Britain, except for Northern Ireland. There, you know that the electoral system in Britain is first past the post. Uh, you don't have separate schools as they do in Northern Ireland. Well, 
I, I should backtrack a little bit. You do have them, but they aren't covering 95 or 98% of the population as they are in Northern Ireland. But you still have got paid schools uh, in this country, in England, and that's partly the result of quite bitter struggles that the Catholics undertook to gain their own schools. And that was a big battle. And in Scotland, that was a huge battle. Uh, and it's one of the big issues was whether Catholics could get their own schools funded at taxpayers' expense. Uh, and this was very strongly resisted. Uh, but they were eventually allowed to have their own schools funded by the taxpayers. Uh, and similar battles actually incidentally went on in other places, uh, in including in Canada, by the way, where a very similar issue. So the Protestants really didn't want to have Catholic schools. And if they had to have them, they didn't think they should be funded by the government. Uh, small amount of cultural funding for newspapers, ethnic newspapers and associations. Uh, so there, there aren't very many aspects of group rights that were operating in Britain uh, in recent decades, except for faith schools. So you had Catholic schools, you had some Jewish schools. That did exist, and that is, a, is one aspect of consociationalism, which is, is kind of like a pure form of multiculturalism, uh, where this is, politics is all around recognizing groups. So you had faith schools, and you had some funding for uh, ethnic initiatives. In particular, you had the government interfacing with ethnic and religious leaders. So when the government deals with directly with community leaders, whether religious or ethnic, that's seen as a kind of multiculturalism, where you're saying, Muslim Council of Britain, you are the representatives of the Muslim community. We, the British government, are going to deal directly with you, and we're going to consider you to be representative of the Muslim community. That's multiculturalism in the sense that you're recognizing that there's a group with a leader that you need to deal with. The criticism of that is, well, you know, the Muslim Council of Britain don't represent that many Muslims. Uh, and most Muslims don't actually agree with them, so why are you dealing with them? So, that, so the, the opposite, or the, the other strategy which has since been adopted is to say, well, we're going to bypass those so-called ethnic leaders, and we're just going to deal with citizens as citizens. They may be Muslim, they may be something else. So again, you see that, that difference between a more multicultural approach, dealing with leaders of groups, versus the more integrationist or even assimilationist Republican type approach, which is you've just got citizens here. It doesn't matter what the group is. Uh, now, another aspect of, of consociationalism is something called proportionality. Uh, seats in the legislature, government positions, police, all of these jobs are going to be doled out on a proportional basis. If you're 50% of Northern Ireland, you get 50% of the seats, you get 50% of the police jobs. So it's group, it's, it's recognizing that groups are the key building block of the society. Uh, is, has there been much of that in England, Scotland, Wales? Not really. Uh, for example, the electoral system is first past the post, so they don't care really whether you're, you know, a Welsh MP equals one, English MP equals one, Etc. Legislation, legislation can pass even if every Welsh MP opposes the legislation. So that suggests that whether you're Welsh or English or Scottish doesn't matter in terms of legislation getting passed. Whereas in Northern Ireland, you cannot pass legislation without 40% support from all the ethnic communities. So there's a different system involved in mainland Britain that's not the multicultural system. It's more of the individual one person, one vote system. Uh, now, however, having said that, there are efforts to, in, not quotas like Northern Ireland, but there are targets for uh, minority representation, but they're loose targets. They're just commitments, say, to have a certain number of ethnic minority candidates. Um, and so parties may compete and say, well, you know, UKIP said, oh, well, look, we've got 85 ethnic minority candidates. That's an example of how the parties are saying, well, you know, we've got a certain number of ethnic minority candidates. It's usually less than their share of the population, however. But to move to a situation where you had to have the same proportion of MPs from the Indian and the African-Caribbean and various other groups as in the population would be moving 
towards that Northern Ireland situation. So, and to the extent you move away from that, you're moving more towards the French one person, one vote situation. So that's the difference between a more multicultural and a less multicultural political system. Um, and again, I think I would argue that, the, that Britain has generally been on the less multicultural end, even though you do have, as I said, some of these policies uh, in a softer form. I also want to say that unlike the United States, there isn't an explicit affirmative action policy that says a certain number of government contracts must go to minority firms or a certain number of university places to minorities and so on. That doesn't, uh, doesn't exist in Britain. But again, of course, there are, are you know, measures to try and increase the share, but it's not quota. Uh, so just kind of assessing the whole picture, I think, generally speaking, we would say there are some aspects of um, Associationalism, which is a, a proxy for a very pure form of multiculturalism. We have some aspects. We've got some faith schools. Uh, we have not quotas, but we've got targets in public institution, institutions to increase the representation of certain underrepresented groups. Uh, but broadly speaking, it's more of an um, integrationist, individualist system. But there is one area where multiculturalism has been more important, and that is to do with the national identity of, of the country. And so it hasn't played much role in terms of allocating resources, distributing power, except for the Scottish and Welsh assemblies. It hasn't really done that. But uh, where, it's, where it's been more important has been in the question of how we talk about Britain and British national identity. And I actually would say, by the way, the same thing for other supposedly multicultural societies like Canada or Australia, that the term multiculturalism is very much a symbolic term. It's a way of talking about what is the national identity of the country. Is the does the national identity come from the parts, the different groups that make up the country? And to the extent the national identity is about the parts, then it's moving in a multicultural direction. So to the extent that you define, uh, you, know, you define Canada as you know, French and English and, and different ethnic minorities, uh, Chinese, Indians, whatever, to the extent you, you say that the national identity springs from that diversity, then you're talking more about a multicultural sense of national identity. Uh, and there's even a, a 1971 Multicultural Act in Canada. That, that tries to sort of talk about this as being in the character of the country. And the emphasis there is that groups are encouraged to maintain their culture uh, over the generations rather than to assimilate into a common culture. Um, and along with, so if, if you go for a more multicultural form of national identity, the common myths and symbols have to be reduced and thinned down to a very minimum to allow the maximum of diversity uh, amongst the different ethnic groups. And so you saw, for example, in Britain in the 1990s, uh, Robin Cook talking about chicken tikka masala as an example of British identity. And so this is a, there was a, a lot of talk about the multicultural, multi-faith nature of, of Britain. And this multiculturalism was also uh, very popular in in a lot of official documents and in a lot of academic documents talking about uh, Britishness and British national identity. Um, and the private sector also takes its cue from this. So you had more discussion of diversifying the workplace, reflecting diversity. You know. So explicit recognition of diversity uh, was more popular for a time from sort of maybe the 1960s to the 1990s, that period. Um, and, and yeah, so what I'm going to talk about next really is, is how that whole debate over symbolic multiculturalism, because really multiculturalism really was only largely there in terms of the symbolic sphere, not in politics and economics so much, much more just in terms of culture, symbols. So it was in that sphere where multiculturalism seemed to make more inroads. And it's there that you've seen the biggest pushback, starting with particularly the labor government in the uh, early 2000s. And so uh, one turning point 
that I lived through was the tabling of the Parak report in 2000 by Biku Parak, who's actually a political theorist who's in the House of Lords. He's actually written some interesting stuff on, on uh, political theory of multiculturalism. But he tabled a, a report into multi-ethnic Britain which uh, was not well received by the Labour government or by commentators. Uh, the report was, did suggest, for example, and, and really Clark was very much drawing on some of the multicultural theorists that I talked about last time, such as Kimlicka and Taylor, and essentially arguing that Britishness is shot through with the ethnic majority identity, and therefore what needs to happen is this public recognition of the diversity uh, of groups in the country, and the country should be declared multicultural, and that would be a real step forward, and there's kind of, uh, even a racist element within Britishness, and that, that again really didn't go down very well. So what happens is that a number of Labour spokespeople such as Jack Straw um, or Gordon Brown or, or David Blunkett um, said, no, what we actually need is not multiculturalism, but we need uh, integration into common Britishness. So there, there then begins the beginning, I think, of um, <coughs> an attack on multiculturalism, not attack on diversity. So they're not saying we want to become a white country again and, and get rid of the minorities. That's the important distinction to make. So it's not multiculturalism as demography or as ethnic makeup, but Multiculturalism as, as a policy. How do you deal with diversity? You recognize it and attempt to accord, uh, to, to make your national identity based upon the identity of the parts and the identity of the groups underneath. Or do you <coughs> take a more integrationist, almost colorblind French approach which says, no, we've just got one single national identity, one common hymn sheet, everyone should buy into that. Um, so 2001, you really start to see this shift uh, after the Milltown riots, after 9-11. Uh, there's more and more discussion about you know, multiculturalism is a problem. It's leading to division, segregation between groups. We need to, what we need is integration. And there are a whole bunch of uh, places you see this, particularly in places that you, didn't ex you wouldn't have expected to see it in the past. Left-wing newspapers, Guardian, Observer, uh, Prospect, Open Democracy, and also um, the BBC Channel 4. So you're starting to see it in the kind of cultural mainstream, this acceptance that actually we need to start to talk more about integration and less about difference. So that shift away from multiculturalism and particularly the symbolism of multiculturalism. Uh, by 2003, 2004, you've got now uh, the 7 7 bombings, particularly after the 7 7 bombings and the Madrid bombings. Uh, more of this talk that you know, now it's actually a security problem because you've got groups isolated in their ethnic enclaves and now you've got radicalism and blah, blah, blah. So you have that uh, additional security worry that's layered in on top uh, of the general worries about lack of common national identity. Uh, Trevor Phillips, who is the head of the Commission for Ra Racial Equality at the time, comes up very strongly against multiculturalism and instead, what's touted is a civic nationalism based on shared values. Um, so Trevor Phillips very much comes out and says, uh, multiculturalism should be scrapped. This is, turns out lived its usefulness. And we need, we're not going to be funding ethnic groups to maintain their own cultures. I mean, we only want to fund people who are interested in doing, uh, pursuing a kind of mixing and integration agenda. Uh, so what then happens to the national identity? If the national identity is not based on the ethnic parts, it's not based on you know, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Scottish, what have you, these different elements, then it needs to be based on something else. So what's it going to be based on? For Gordon Brown in particular, he thought British values was going to be the way uh, that would provide the glue around which people could cohere, and it would be something that obviously is very inclusive. Anybody can buy into British values. The problem, of course, is that a value like toleration or enterprise is, you know, nobody's, those are universal values. I mean, nobody is going to be against uh, those values, except for a very, very small number of people. And, and every country is going to 
going to say those are our values. So it's not clear that they give a country much distinctiveness. And that kind of was the problem with, with British values. It really isn't enough to say we believe in toleration and, and liberty and, and, and these, these other values because everybody else is saying the same thing. That, that could conceivably be seen as a problem. But it was seen as a way of having a Britishness that was open to members of all ethnic groups and that was unifying rather than emphasizing difference. Uh, but of course there were issues with both ethnic minorities and ethnic majorities because for the ethnic minorities, uh, to some extent, they felt that they did live in a multicultural Britain, particularly in very diverse parts of London or the North, where the reality of life, as they experienced it, was multicultural. Plus, of course, uh, they were also had an interest in uh, drawing attention to perhaps minority underrepresentation in government or different spheres of the economy. For the ethnic majorities, however, there were also issues, and in particular, the ethnic majorities often had a thicker, more ethnic sense of identity as English, Welsh, Scottish, uh, and that those identities they felt maybe weren't adequately recognized in this sort of universalistic kind of abstract notion of what it meant to be British. Uh, and so, uh, it's interesting in this vein, we had, there's an important article written by David Goodhart who, um, Hopefully some of you managed to come to the debate on the migrant crisis and where he, he talked. So he wrote this article, which got a lot of press in 2004, saying, to the extent that you emphasize diversity in a society, you take away from the solidarity in the society. And so there's a trade-off between having a more diverse society and having a more solidaristic society where people are going to be willing to pay into a common welfare state and participate in democracy and all these good collective things. So collectivism versus diversity in a way. There was also a lot of research out by the American political scientist Robert Putnam, who's kind of a leading political scientist, who argued there's a, a trade-off between diversity and support for the welfare state, and particularly diversity of trust. And, and there's been a whole slew of different studies that have found a mixed result. Some of them I would say, broadly speaking, that most of these studies do show that areas that are more diverse have less interpersonal trust. However, uh, the studies don't seem to show that more diverse countries have lower support for the welfare state. So that, that debate is ongoing, but I think there is some recognition that there is a bit of a tension between more diverse societies and social solidarity. It raises uh, all kinds of issues around immigration, around multiculturalism, and it also raised the question of the basis of social solidarity. Uh, to what extent is that bound up with the ethnic majority group, in this case, the English? Now, one political actor that very much took the view that uh, Britain should reflect only the ethnic majority group is the far right, so, so in particular, the British National Party. So the British National Party's view of British national identity is not only are we not multicultural, um, actually we're not civic, we're an ethnic nation. And so they talked about, they had a narrative of indigenousness, that there's a native British population, uh, and this native British people are endangered in, quote, their homeland. And, you know, it's an interesting, actually, I mean, it's not that out of, out of line with the kinds of nationalism that we see in many parts of the world which are ethnically based. Uh, this idea of we're, an ethnic, we're the ethnic Malaysia, we're the ethnic Malays, we're the majority, we're the indigenous group, we have the right to determine the direction of society. It's a very similar kind of logic to this here. Um, and, and some of the, the uh, policies that the BNP proposed included not only halting immigration, but in some versions, repatriation of ethnic minorities. So obviously that's not going to win them a lot of votes. Uh, but it, it is a, it's a way of saying, well, what does the extreme of the ethnic nationalists have to say about these questions? Um, what is, however, interesting, I think, about the BNP uh, is that groups which maybe once weren't considered fully British were now actually included. So even the BNP 
has become a bit more tolerant. Irish Catholics are now considered British in a way they wouldn't have been. So even in the 1970s and 80s, Irish Catholics would not have been included. So they have been included uh, in this BNP nationalism, which I think is actually quite interesting. See the same with the EDL, by the way. The English Defense League uh, are also, in many cases, the leadership is, is of Irish Catholic origin, which is interesting. An indication of assimilation. Uh, OK. So uh, kind of talk you through, I guess, a lot of these different political positions and, and different ways of thinking about how do you manage ethnic diversity and then also how do you talk about national identity. They're actually bound up together. Right? So if you take, now there are two different versions. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, and this is maybe a little complicated, but there, there are two different kinds of multiculturalism. Uh, there is a group-based, if you like, you know, each group in their own silo type of multiculturalism, which is represented by, to some extent, Vicky Parak's work, but in particular is the view of groups like the Muslim Council of Britain or like other ethnic or religious organizations whose interest is really just to maintain their group more or less the way it is, maintain their ethnic boundaries. Uh, what they're interested in is a sort of communally-based multicultural society where you've got each group not necessarily mixing with each other except in the economy. You've then got another version of multiculturalism, and which is more what you might call the cosmopolitan multiculturalism, what others have called multiculture rather than multiculturalism. These are academic debates, I know. Uh, but that, that view says, well, actually, groups can mix. And it's maybe somewhere between cosmopolitanism, which involves groups completely blending with each other and borrowing with each other and hybridizing, um, and this, which is really groups maintaining their boundaries. Uh, I mean, the criticism here would tend to be, well, if, if groups are really mixing like that, then they're going to be moving in the direction of uh, civic nationalism. They're going to probably lose their ethnic identity and trend towards a common national identity. And that's the position. This is kind of the integrationist position of people like Trevor Phillips and many in New Labour would argue for a common uh, British national identity. Kevin Malik would be another figure in this. People who would be critical of multiculturalism, and they would say, no, multiculturalism divides people. We need to have this more uh, civic liberal nationalist position. Uh, you then move to another position, which is also that of Again, some figures in New Labour, some figures even in UKIP, and, and David Goodhart perhaps. But it's a bit of a mixed bag category, and I'm not sure it, it really works. But it's basically about the idea that, yes, we need a civic nationalism. So it's not about having British ancestry or British ethnicity. So it's inclusive in that sense. But at the same time, we can't have immigration running at a very high level. So we, we want to assimilate or integrate people. And in order to do that, we need to lower the rate. Not abolish, but lower the number of people coming in. Whereas I think Trevor Phillips would say, no, we can actually deal with the level of immigration we're getting now, but they all have to integrate into uh, a British national identity. And then finally, you can come up here to a more ethnic national identity as espoused by the British National Party. Uh, which says, well, no, really, actually, this is a, uh, Britain is defined by indigenous ethnic communities, particularly an ethnic English majority. Uh, and then that is really where the country gets its national identity from. Um, so they would emphasize the ethnic dimensions rather than the civic dimensions, uh, as emphasized by others. Um, and and I, you know, it brings us back to this question of what is multiculturalism. I said there were two different stripes within multicultural thinking, one of which is the more groupist <coughs> version, which is maybe a little closer to the Bikuparic way of thinking, and then a more cosmopolitan version, which allows for more mixing. And so what's tricky about, about this, again, is <coughs> to the extent that you go for a more cosmopolitan version, like Tariq Madud, uh, a more cosmopolitan version of multiculturalism, and you allow groups to mix, and you have groups mixing, or you even encourage that, uh, it's very likely that they're going to be moving in the direction of um, 
national, uh, civic nationalism, because how are, they, how are groups going to maintain that, that difference? So that's perhaps a challenge for um, that cosmopolitan version. And of course, these cosmopolitan multiculturalists, what they're saying is it's possible to both be liberal and a multiculturalist, whereas in the theory, that's, that's problematic. So someone could say, how can you talk about maintaining ethnic boundaries and say you're a liberal? It's impossible. You have to allow people to intermarry, to mix, and so on. Any liberal would have to permit that. Um, and that's where the people like Tariq Madhu are saying, well, actually, you know, we can kind of have multiculturalism and liberalism, but we're just going to have a more cosmopolitan version of multiculturalism. Uh, whether that, that works, it's tricky. Uh, and, and it gets to some issues around what, what is the multiculturalism position? Is it, and, and here we see some dis differences between the cosmopolitan and the groupist communitarian view of what multiculturalism is. So one strand of multiculturalism says we want to have separate institutions, including perhaps law, legal ju jurisdiction, or at least certain political institutions, so we want to go for parallel institutions. The cosmopolitan version says, no, we want to integrate with, with the mainstream, we want to have political and economic integration. On marriage, the group, you know, communitarian multiculturalism says, broadly speaking, doesn't explicitly say it, but favors marrying within the group, whereas cosmopolitan multiculturalism talks about hybridity and interchange between groups and more of a shared cosmopolitan values rather than separate values. Um, so it's that, that question of whether multiculturalism can survive hybridity. Uh, and that's the big question. Uh, does not, doesn't hybridity eventually lead to uh, a common culture? Last slide, I promise. Uh, and this is just to introduce another wrinkle, which is that you can actually have you can actually have um, multicultural, what looks like multiculturalism, uh, as a means to a assimilationist end. So when uh, Sarkozy in France says, we've got to actually find out what the ethnic composition of the population is, what the ethnic composition of the elite is, who's, who's getting the jobs in the media, who's getting the jobs in government, the high levels of government, we do have to know uh, what the ethnic composition is just to be able to direct our efforts to combat discrimination. Now, Sarkozy's not interested in having a multicultural society, but what he is interested in doing is integrating uh, particularly uh, the Muslim minority in France. And so in order to do that, you actually have to have, do some multicultural things, such as uh, start talking about targets for multi uh, ethnic minorities in government and in top levels of the media and the civil service. So you have to kind of use a multicultural means in order to achieve what is more of an assimilationist end. So that's just, maybe that's a step beyond the discussion we want to have. But it's just to say that there are, is that further complication. When we talk about multiculturalism, sometimes it's just about achieving an integrationist end. And even, for example, the security forces in this country dealing with Salafi fundamentalists to try and de-radicalize people might be seen as not necessarily about recognizing the, the Salafis as you know, representatives of their community, but actually saying, well, we want to work with the Salafis to try and deal with the security situation to achieve a more integrated society. So it's not necessarily that they're, they're, they're going for a more multicultural society. They're just maybe using a, a kind of multicultural tool to achieve an integrationist end.